You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. Jack Roberts is the winemaker at Keep Winery. He's making some of the most sought-after wines coming out of California. Albarino from Clocksburg, Pinot Meunier, co-fermented Merlot and Chardonnay, and other curious wines that you have to find. Listen to his journey from England to Paris to California. So, hey, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I was incredibly fortunate to sit with Jack Roberts to taste through some of his wines, Keep Winery, at his house. And, uh, boy, we tasted things from the Delta to Mendocino to Napa, which we're going to talk about. But I think most people put California in a certain flavor box. We'll call it Venice Profiling. And you, sir, you just blow this box apart. So thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you started making Keep Wines uh, with your wife, um, Johanna Jensen, right, in 2009. Um, That's right. And she worked with Abe and, and um, Chris Brockaway, and, you know, you worked for years with Steve Mathias, and so I just, I think being around these winemakers just puts you on a different path, certainly, correct? Uh, completely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I initially, when I started, I, I started with a couple of more traditional wineries, and um, I was very keen to uh, to to look to make wine from the the uh, viticultural perspective, so from from the farming standpoint, and and the, you know really every all roads led to Steve. So as as soon as I arrived, it became pretty clear that he was the guy that I needed to talk to about that. Yeah, and he's um, an amazing. So, yeah, farmer. Exactly, and uh, and he happened to need someone at the time to, to help him out because he was just branching out with his brand, which hadn't really taken off yet. It was sort of on the upswing, but it was still he was it was still a struggle, okay. and he needed just physical help getting all the vineyards in order. So, so it was good timing. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I let's uh, let's go back a little bit further. Um, you know, obviously you have an accent. I don't know if it's Brooklyn or Queens that I'm picking up. <laughs> Uh, but like, where, where did you grow up? What did your mom and dad do? Were they farmers? Were they in the business? Um, obviously in England somewhere. Yes. Um, actually, surprisingly, not in England. I, no. I, um, the re- no, my so, um, and I, I, I don't blame you for for thinking that. But I, <laughs> I uh, grew up in France. I was born in France um, and um, lived all my life in France. But my father, being English. Uh, was quite keen to send me to school in England, so I I I got packed off to school at an early age uh, in boarding school, and so I I would go to school to England and uh, and then come back home to France every couple of months or so. And yeah. and where was home in France? Uh, so initially in Paris, and then pretty pretty soon uh, my parents uh, decided to. My mum inherited six thousand dollars in the nineteen seventies. Mm-hmm. And they they went on a hunt throughout France to to find the the cheapest biggest property they could find out in the countryside, and that happened to be near a little village called Lupiac in the southwest of France in Gascony, um, which is not known for anything other than being the place where 
d'artagnan was born oh <laughs> yeah and, existed. and foie gras and that and area you are, there foie gras is all yeah the whole area but <laughs> d'artagnan is, is specific to <laughs> right is, is lupiak a dessert wine or am i just imagining that no no you're, you're right but that one's okay. spelled with a with o-u whereas uh this is spelled with just a u l-u-p-i-a-c so why so, the great escape from paris to this little teeny village for your parents um you know that's a good question my father grew grew up uh on a farm and uh and my so did my mother and they both ended up in the city uh doing various kinds of work and i think that they both yearned to get back to the countryside um by the time they were having children so that kind of is what they decided to do and so it's in yeah. their blood and um and it's in your yeah, blood exactly. I, with i think the irony is um you know, I mean, you, you had the fancy education. You went to Eton College, the alma mater of uh, David Cameron, the prime minister. And then, <laughs> and then back and George to the, Orwell. And George Orwell. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that's pretty, pretty, pretty two prestigious people. Than the other guy. <laughs> uh, but, I, you know, I always, um, I, I've said this before, that you, when you grow up, you, you tend to want to get as far away from your childhood as possible. And then you weirdly have this journey back to it in some way or another, and that's where you kind of find yourself. So I think finding yourself back farming uh, is in your blood and your parents' blood, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, my, my dad grew up on a big sheep farm in Northumberland, and uh, and I grew up actually on a, on a small sheep farm in, in Gascony. <laughs> but yeah, so I, 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 uh, I decided that I wanted to, to go back to France um, and and you know, get back to my roots in the country for sure. Yeah, it was, that, it was pretty um powerful. Pull. Huh. And you fell in love with the land and farming again. Yeah, but that was really that was Steve who kind of, yeah. you know, because growing up, I you know, I just saw farmers going broke everywhere around me. Um, and uh, you know, the eighties was just horrific. Yeah, the flight to the big too. cities, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember when there were hundreds of people in our village, and we would have. You know, the Tour de France would come through, and we had zoo. You know, uh, I don't know, circuses came through, and then that all went, and so did all the people. And then, you know, it, it became it became sort of more large scale farming. You know, that compared to US, it's not that large scale, but it still became people expanded their properties. You needed hundreds of acres to really make it, and so the small scale farmer wasn't really making it, and and it wasn't such an you know exciting prospect to get into large-scale chemical farming um uh as romantic as farming is that wasn't really what you know attracted me to to the country so so i kind of gave up on the idea and then then you went to paris um, though right from, from it, yeah and i went to paris and then um i i i worked as as a sort of builder carpenter uh i, I would uh find spaces and do them up and then try and sell them for more later. Mm -hmm. I would, I, and and then on, in between jobs, I would have to show gainful employment to, to my bank so that I could borrow more money for the next project. <laughs> Something on the books, you mean? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I couldn't just say, "Well, I was unemployed for four months after that." Uh, so I had to. Um, I would get these little jobs, and and one of them was at um, was a place downstairs from from where I lived. Uh, this this um, restaurant called Le Vervolé. Mm -hmm. Which um, which became my sort of haunt. But you know, previous to ever working there, I'd loved it, and um, right. and then I started working there, and then 
Cyril, the owner, actually both the owners are called Cyril, Cyril but the, the guy who runs the restaurant, Cyril, he, um, he really got me into, into natural wine and, and it was, you know, growing up with wine, I was, I don't know, it, it wasn't a very natural thing for me to, to sort of, when I would talk with, about wine to people, I, uh, I would feel kind of intimidated by the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the nice thing about the, the whole natural wine movement when it happened was it was very sort of welcoming to anybody that wanted to know more about wine. They didn't make them feel too it's, ill at it's, ease. It's true. It's, it's a very wide embrace, right? I don't think um, if there's one downfall to wine that I always rail against is this idea of, uh, you know, knowing all the Grand Cru's uh, in Burgundy and knowing the classification of Bordeaux and knowing all this geography and all these kind of um, just this yeah. data that you want you to remember. So you seem like you know what you're doing. And the, and the natural wine rules, the exact opposite to like, you love wine. We love wine. What do you think this tastes like? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, totally. and it's a, and it's a big hug. Yeah, so what exactly. was the first bottle that you went, man, I, I, I kind of love this. <laughs> That really oh, wow. got you to turn the light so on. So there was this guy, I don't think he's around anymore, but he made this wine called uh, Domaine de Pera, P-E-Y-R-A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, I think, it was, I believe it was a Gamay. I, I might be wrong about that. It was a long time ago. It was absolutely mind-blowing. I never tasted wine like that. Huh. And then um, just fantastic stuff. And then, and then I, you know, it, it was all the, all the classic stuff, um, the, uh, uh, Fiffling was very much being drunk at that time, right? And it was, it was ridiculous. It was like nine euros a bottle. You go, <laughs> and we were just drinking, you know, gallons of the stuff. So I think Gamay was the key that opened the door. That's what yeah. I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if it's Julian Peyra who's in the Ardèche that wine. It's, I mean, the name sounds familiar. It, but, it could be. Uh, he he had to sell the property, and so the the Peyra thing died with him and i think he he started a new project and i haven't really kept up there was another guy called Maupertuis who was really good he's still mm. around actually he makes gamay d'auvergne huh. um, wow fantastic stuff really spicy gamay yeah so you find um, yourself hanging out in wine bars and now working in a wine bar um yeah. and just tasting like any good wine bar at the end of the night you're just everything that's open you sit around and taste and kind yeah. of develop your palate or your love that way right Exactly. We we would close shop at around uh, you know half past midnight, and then um, Cyril would basically taste us through all this stuff, and we would stay there till two in the morning just just drinking wine. It's just unbelievable. Oh, and um, that's very yeah. Cool. And so then I was like, oh well, you know, wine's not so bad after all. <laughs> but I did. I still hadn't an inkling that I would I would actually one day make wine. That was I was still. Yeah. So what's the next step dream. from Paris to? Uh, California is that the next step? Yeah. Um, so th- then I realized that the building uh, gig was was hard on my body. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I decided, okay, well, I made a bit of money. I can um, let's just do something very different. So I I, uh, I have a uh, childhood sort of friend and mentor uh, from from Napa um, called Lee Hudson. Oh yeah, who, uh, yeah Hudson Vineyards, oh. and he. Uh, sure. I've, you know, I've known him since I was a baby because my mother is from Texas and so is Lee Hudson and they, they knew ah, each other in, in Houston. Okay, there we yeah. go. Yeah. And so I, he said, you know, come over, come over to Napa and just I'll, I'll give you a job in the, in the vineyard with the, with the crew mm-hmm. and um, for, for a month and, you know, you can go back to France afterwards or whatever you want to do. So I, I turned up and um, 
But the first thing that happened was uh, Lee threw a party on the, at his house to introduce me to a few people, and uh, and I met Johanna, my wife. <laughs> oh wow! And uh, yeah, like the second day, and then um, and then the next thing that happened was that I really really enjoyed working with the uh, the, the crew out in the out in the in the vineyard. Um, See, that's where and, your far- farming blood kicks in because that is backbreaking work. There's a but there's a um, a community that's built there. You're in the trenches with people, right? And yeah. There's a love of what you do, and there's something about connected to the earth. But I think that's in your blood. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, it ta- it does take a certain mentality to to want to stay out for hours on end in mm-hmm. the sun. But um, it's not too backbreaking. It's very healthy work, actually. I find um, well, you look fit. Yeah, it's sort of it's more like yoga because you're doing all these like mini movements. Movements all the time, um, right. you know, crouching and standing, yeah. and so it's it's um, it's actually like I I never feel better than after a day working out in the vineyard. It's oh, crazy. It's better cool. than going for a run. Or, yeah. yeah. Do you do you cycle at all? I like to cycle. I'm, I don't do it very seriously, but I do. Yeah. Okay. Because um, you're going to come on the ZD Crush with us next year, the Crush <laughs> yeah. Challenge. Steve did. So you you're, you're joining. We're going to just make you come join us. Uh, uh, I thought yeah. you were going to. I thought you were going to tell me the first thing Lee Hudson did was like like roll up a joint, smoke it with you, <laughs> because I've met Lee, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he threw some serious parties. I'll neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, you met your wife, and so you're. Working in the vineyards with Lee, and Hudson Vineyard is one of the most famous vineyards in uh, Napa as well. Um, and then you meet your wife, and yeah, she I mean, was making wine at the point at that point, yes? Yeah, she was working for, for Abe. Uh, she just started working for him, Abe Shana, at Scotland Project. And um, and so uh, we, what the first thing that happened was that we made wine together. Uh, she she was They were getting some, some fruit from, from uh, Clarksburg, and... Uh, mm. With with scolium and I think Abe encouraged us to just buy a ton of uh, Albarino, uh, right. my memory serves, and that was in two thousand and nine. So I I helped her make it. I mean, she really did most of the work, but I was in in, in the in the in the winery with her, you know, doing all the cleaning and all that stuff. And then mm. and then I realized, whoa, we can just put stuff in a put juice juice in a barrel and it just ferments, <laughs> you know. And um, it all seemed very simple back then. <laughs> Right, um, and then and then she worked at Abe's, and then she worked at Brock Sellers as well. After that, or before? Um, she yeah, she worked. She went to work at Abe's, and then she went to Brock Sellers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, who also makes really interesting wines, um, like Abe, like Alien, uh, the Scolium Project, uh, you know, the, um, the the Prince's Cave, and those wines. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, certainly, like skin contact. I think they're way ahead of the curve. By the way, um, the the Abe wines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. The he he uh, he like I, I didn't like all his wines, but the ones I like, yeah. boy, did I like them. They were yeah, really. He, amazing. he did do some crazy shit. He did like a Repasso styled Cabernet, which was just like yeah, it's one of those you just I don't know what to think. Um, Might have just erased part of my brain when I drank some of it, but. <laughs> Um, I had one that was uh, Sangiovese and Riesling. <laughs> that was possibly one of the most delicious wines I've ever had. Yeah, and he 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 just made it once. I think, I think it was Riesling. It might have been Pinot Grigio, but um, and uh, I think the sto- this, he poured me this bottle and he said, "Yep, I, this is the first wine I made uh, when I was working at Luna." 
And uh, John Kongsgaard said, well, you're never going to make a wine as good as this. And it really was that good. It was just, and he never wow. made it again. Yeah. Huh. Why didn't he make it again? Just. I, I think he couldn't yeah. get the grapes. I, I don't yeah. know, but he, I don't know. I'm surprised that he didn't try and do that, that blend again, but it was, or that, that Koferman again, it was absolutely mind blowing. And then the Prince in his caves was just something else. So I, good. I, I'll tell you what I love about this kind of new California wave. There's, there's guys like Abe who's been doing it forever and um, bless him for pioneering this kind of attitude to open our minds, really, to try something different other than walking down the usual road of Cab, Shard, Pinot, particularly from California, particularly just from Napa, which is all the, the pedigree and, and back then certainly the gold standard. But there's guys like uh, um, him, yourself, Brock. Uh, have you ever had any of the Scotty Boy wines where he does like two years, like, like ferments and old boutique and he does really crazy kind of varietals as well. Um, there is this, yeah, they're really fantastic wines. And, and so Abe Sangiovese Riesing, is that somewhat of a, um, inspiration for you? You do a co-ferment of Merlot and I forget, was it Chardonnay that you co-fermented? Uh, yeah, it was Mer Merlot and Chardonnay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that uh, uh, was sort of an opportunistic, uh, co-ferment because, um, we just, we're told at the end of the pick, oh, we got some Chardonnay over here. So we just threw it in and went, yeah. <laughs> um, but totally, that was definitely a, I, I, I think JJ and I, have, we've had several wines that, um, you know, with it just red wines with a little bit of white added. And it's mm. always been a really surprising and delicious blend. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. People don't realize it, but um, a lot of Italian wines, like Chianti, for instance, always throw in a little bit of, uh, some of them do throw in some white varietals. And you do really get this elevated fruit. I mean, Co Roti has done it forever with uh, yeah. Viognier and Syrah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's, in your mind, you have a hard time kind of saying you're throwing Merlot in with Chardonnay, but it totally makes sense when you taste it. When we were sitting in your backyard, by the way, your house is amazing. I believe you said AO's a, a, the original librarian's home, librarian's home for town. And of course, you did a masterful job restoring this gorgeous house that uh, you told me when you were renting it because you were heading back to France and you told me the rent. Um, I almost had a nervous breakdown and cried. Uh, it was so inexpensive to New York rents, but what a gorgeous house. You're uh, gifted uh, in many ways and uh, have the knack for uh, just making things beautiful. But sitting in your backyard eating these amazing cheeses, um, I was looking through and I was kind of taking notes. There's like... There was Aligote, and there was Albarino, and there was the Co-Ferment. And the, the wines were just, you know, somebody at the table commented, yeah, this is what, um, uh, like, American Psalms have to stop doing, start doing, um, and stop doing this. It, I don't understand that wine. Uh, they should taste it first and go, is this wine, what's it taste like? And the answer is always delicious. I mean, because you make incredible wines. And, and try to get outside the head of like these classic mono varietals or you can't grow Albarino in California. Um, but to your point, your Clarksburg one, I mean, it's like no one in a million years would think like 14 miles or so from Sacramento that there's like, you know, marine sedimentary soils and water and 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 heat that could make something that is salty and and fresh and tastes like Albarino. Yeah, it's very undervalued for for what it is. And so close to Sacramento, home for I think the most serial killers in the world and uh, bad malls. <laughs> maybe, but maybe we should rename Clarksburg America's Galicia. <laughs> yeah, just a name. I'll I'll send an email to the mayor. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. But you, I, you know what we're, we're talking about? Like, so let's talk about like the specific vineyards that you farm and why you farm them. And let's really talk about it. it is the farming that makes the wine. It sounds like you're just saying, oh, you just could put this on this, this. But it really starts at the farming level. That's what Steve does really well. Uh, that's what Matthew Rorick, who you source some of his um, uh, vineyards do. Uh, are just It starts with great farming, does it not? Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the, I mean, when you – if Steve tries to differentiate himself from from – other farmers in, in in various ways, but he's ultimately trying to achieve quality, and you, and it's all about timing um, mm. in in your farming practices. Um, so, you know, I, I could get into the nitty gritty of it, but I mean, ultimately, the the the, the most important timing factor is when to pick, mm-hmm. um, and then the, before that, you can get to that. There are lots of things that require perfect timing or pretty good timing in order to to achieve that high level of quality. Um, but the picking time is 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 huge. You you yeah. Steve would often describe it as like you know there's a there's a time when like the uh, that your grapes have this sort of high fruit, um, you know, flavor, and and then and then you can miss that boat, and then then suddenly you're in the jam. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I, th- I think that what a lot of people do because maybe it's more commercially successful i don't know is it's just they they wait until the last moment because they can you know they can ensure that they're going to get that jam quality which i'm not really at all interested in um mm. from a wine making standpoint i really value the fruit and that's that's one of the things that really steve taught me was how, how exciting that can be when you can really time time a pick and really capture you know the 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 the, the fruit of that vintage in a bottle you can actually lock it in um and it's just so wonderful. Yeah, there's a, there's a freshness to all your wines. There's a freshness to Steve's wines. I, it's not just about picking early because anybody could do that. Um, yeah. It is the thousand steps before picking early where you can For achieve sure. this kind of physiological ripeness but still uh, under bricks of what normal people might pick at. Um, and uh, just when you try the wine, there's, like I said, there's a balance to it. Mm. Um, so how many wines do you make right now? Gosh, I don't even know. Actually, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I think uh, wait, I'm six or seven, maybe yeah. eight. But we're gonna we're gonna expand that this year with um, with some more wines. Um, so cool. yeah, it's always sort of goes up, goes down, but not as many as Steve. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Steve has his first Pinot coming online. Uh, line. Uh, I was just out there. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, super, super excited to have that in the market. Um, so what, like, where are you growing? Where would you expand to? Um, is it just what incredible vineyard source becomes available that you had a hand in farming or you know how it's farmed? Um, is there anything that's kind of out there that you think like, oh, I'm going to give this a shot? Or, or are you looking at some Portuguese, Portuguese varietal grown in the foothills or something? Is I mean, because your reach is pretty, pretty uh, long. Yeah. Uh, we, we, Generally, I have to say, JJ, I called Johanna. Um, we 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 have total suckers for the weird and the wonderful. <laughs> um, we, anything the weirder the better, uh, just because you know it, that's what keeps that's our fuel for for winemaking. Really, is, right. is like wow, you know, it's like it's like 
discovering gold, you know, in the mm-hmm. in the gold rush days for us, like finding these new varieties and what they do, it's, it just never ceases to um, to cause wonderment for us. So, um, so yeah. And then in terms of where where I'm looking for grapes, um, I you know I I I would I do and I will take you know if I can get grapes in Napa, which it, I mean is really one of the most incredible places to grow i mean it 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 is pretty astounding you you go one valley over and it's just not the same um it's it the the quality of what you can grow there is is just out of this world but um, the other thing that's out of this world is the price though so yeah you know it's becoming harder and harder to do that but um but yeah we, we get stuff from all over from um from the sierra foothills such such high quality wines or, or grapes coming out of there uh, i um, love the soil there There's yeah quartz and obsidian and this is a crazy beautiful the elevation um it's probably still probably the least discovered wine area in california i think yeah. is the foothills yeah there's just so much up there and and yeah people doing exciting stuff um with gamay now and, and you know truso i mean all kinds of yeah. Cool, you, cool. you know, I'm surprised at uh, one of the most disappointing um, seminars I sat in on uh, was the Santa Lucia Highlands, uh, and Galoni was hosting it. And there was a whole panel of um, top winemakers. I won't name them. You know who they are. Everybody knows who they are. There's not that many from Santa Lucia Highlands. Um, and I asked them, because all they talk about how cool climate there. I mean, they grow cabbage, right? So it's it's that cool. Yeah. So I asked the panel, like, why is it nobody's doing, like, Trousseau or Pulsard or, like, Cot, like, like Loire-style Malbec? And, and everybody across the panel pretty much said, there's no money in it. And I, I, and I said, uh, you know, it's interesting because some of these people already sold their wineries. So they've cashed out for quite a large sum of money. And I th- and I said, but isn't it, wouldn't it be interesting? That, yeah, it's interesting, but really, they were being honest. They're like, there's no money in it. And I thought, man, that's fucking sad. Yeah, um, that's so sad because you know the only thing that comes out of you there, the, you only see Chard and Pinot, but they brag about how cool climate it is. But they're what they do is just in some of the wines are 15 percent alcohol, I, and it's just like it's such a beautiful area. And I think like that's like what you're doing is creating dialogue and stories and hunting down Old Mission or Valdegui or interesting varietals that tell a much broader story about California, California winemaking, dealing with climate change, dealing with all these other factors, but keeping it interesting. Yeah. I mean, we we, we try and keep it interesting just from a selfish point of view. I don't know how, sure. how you know, commercially sensible it is. <laughs> um, I mean, we, so we somehow made a living from it, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, I can understand that. You know, if you're if you're growing grapes, you you got to make money because that's that's the main. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's number one. You got to pay the bills. Um, but at the same time, I think that um, you know we we should also look to the future. There's a the people drinking wine nowadays um, are, I think, more open minded about what what they're going to drink. That they, they they don't want just the classic varieties. Um, you know. A hundred percent. Because that makes them feel comfortable ordering that in a restaurant. People want to order something weird now. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think probably people would be well advised to to be more excited about new varieties to plant um, because I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay dividends in the future for sure. 
Also, as you open up this flavor box, this spice box, right? You yeah. can it's much more interesting with what food you're eating. I mean, you're doing carbonic quinoas, you know, or pinot meunier. This totally different f- flavor wheel you're dealing with, and it's just much more interesting and much more dynamic. Um, yeah, and the the wines for different moods. You know, it's not just after a buff bourguignon in midwinter you have a sort of really inky, mm-hmm. you know, cabernet sauvignon. So uh, that that. You know, sometimes that's what you want, but sometimes you just want a, a a red wine that's almost like a white wine in terms of its, um, you know, how delicate it is. And, exactly. And, you know, aromatic, and so, and I think people people are, are choosing wine according to their mood much more yeah. now. And uh, I think what, that adds to your success. What you're doing, you yeah. people like I've never had an Albino from me. I've never had, uh, or or to our slightly earlier conversation. Look what Steve's doing. Steve has the classics, but then he's also doing Rabola Jala, and then he's also on his property. He's got a little bit of Sagrantino, and then he was playing with Fusco. Like, yeah, isn't, aren't, shouldn't we all just continually try to evolve? You know, the story so. and, and our taste so, and yeah. our palates. Yeah, uh, totally. Yes, Steve's gone big with Rafosco. He was I remember when I was there, it was it was three rows and now he's planted almost half the vineyard to Rafosco. I mean, that wine is so delicious. Um I, I'm I surprised that he didn't do it earlier, but I'm so glad he has now. <laughs> and I just absolutely love his uh his Rabola Jala. It's one of my absolute favorite because it's fresh white wine, has texture of red wine. Um yeah. But, you know, your wines are very similar. It's obvious. And you spent 10 years with that guy. That is a very long relationship uh, to be in the field and learning your craft. That, that's a real, like, mentorship program, which I think lots of people work, you know, three months somewhere, put it on the resume and start making wine. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, but, he's, he, you know, he's one of those people that you just, um, you love to hang out with. Mm-hmm. Um, him and Jill is just, they're both, you know, endlessly fascinating and passionate about what they do and and they want to you know when you work there it, it really is much more akin to a family than a than a business it's a family business i guess um it, yeah. they really they make you feel very very welcome and so it was yeah. it was hard for me to to move on oh. um and we're, we're still fantastic friends i just had dinner with him the other the other night yeah um, we're just sitting in his yard and pull the figs off the trees and yeah them, right yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing people don't understand. Like, he's a farmer farmer. He was doing, like, you know, fruit trees and all this stuff before. So his knowledge is just historic and encyclopedic with plants and everything having to do with them. Uh, which yeah. Which really translated. Um, well, the one thing I learned from him is that, you know, he he knew, yeah, he, he understood the mechanics of everything that he was doing, uh, the, the growing of the plants, everything. So, you know, when you understand everything about how to grow peaches which i can't say i do but i know a little bit about thanks to him um he can then translate some of that knowledge i don't i can't give an example right now but into like how he farms grapes and he just uses very practical solutions that he's learned in different disciplines um to to apply that to grape farming and i think he you know he came to napa and started advising people on how to grow um, mm-hmm. Or how to maintain their vineyards, and and sort of blew their minds with the sort of simplicity of of, of the advice that he gave and how effective it was. Um, yeah, you know, uh, oh. he 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 really like everybody at the time, which I find amazing is that they were growing these these very poor uh, 
they 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 they'd grafted onto a rootstock that um called one one fourteen, which is sort of very weak. It does it's not very good at finding water. It's it's used to sitting in a riverbed basically and mm. having water just fed to it all the time. And all the vines and pretty much when he arrived were on, on this rootstock. And um and he, he's advised everybody, you know, put a powerful rootstock in there because we we live in a you know a a a place that is, you know, racked with drought and and um and these root stocks can handle it and you'll still get high quality. In fact, you you'll have high quality and high quantity. Um there's there's nothing that one doesn't prevent the other. Um right. and he he's proven that time and time again. Everybody thought that you had to grow sort of one ton per acre on on this terrible rootstock or terrible rootstock for Napa. I'm sure it's great in other places. Mm. But um and um and he, he he was able to show them no you can you can actually make money and make delicious wine you know um yeah and you've proven that um so what's the next big exciting project in front of you is there something you just discovered or you have your eye on i mean your oligote was just delicious i'm really looking forward to oh yeah know, just uh, grabbing another bottle of that 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 was yeah it was um i got i got that from scott young the the the, the graft material um mm-hmm. over at young inglewood um and uh yeah, he. <laughs> I was real surprised. I put it in in Sonoma, and and um, and it it it's growing beautifully. I I put it on. I top grafted it over some um, some Merlot that was really diseased, and uh, yeah, when you put a white like that on top of the uh, of a diseased red, it still will do pretty well. And so we're getting very good yields because Aligote likes to put about ten tons per acre <laughs> um, of fruit out. And, uh, Keep on making it. <laughs> yeah, and it's na- it it's now fully online. So, but new projects. Other than that, um, the, I guess the big one is uh, we're, we're we're starting to uh, buy grapes in France. I'm, I've I've come back to to France. I'm here, I'm wow. in France now, and um, I'm uh, in a few days' time. We're going to harvest some grapes that um, some organic grapes from a neighbor of ours. Um, some Fer Salvadou. Uh, oh. Yeah, which uh, it's it's got a few names, uh, but it's otherwise known as uh, Pinanque. Pinanque is the kind of the name that everybody gives it around where we are, mm-hmm. as well as Fer, and then uh, Brocol. Uh, uh-huh. I don't know if you, have you ever had Plageol wines. No, yeah. no. Oh, they're very good, and um, he, he's so in gonna, our area. And you're gonna bottle and, it there? Yep, yep. So we, uh, I I took the old cellar from from our house. From my where my parents live, mm-hmm. and um, I've con- I've reconverted it back into a cellar, put in drains, and getting uh, press delivered and forklift and all that. So you ship that wine to grapes. California? Well, yeah, that would be if I if I can make enough of it. I, I'm definitely going to send it back to the states. Um, you have my address. You should send me a couple <laughs> bottles. I'll, I'll send you some extensive tasting notes. <laughs> That'll be my yeah, contribution. <laughs> you break your back, and I will send you tasting notes. Yeah. Um, well, cool, man. But, We're at the part of the show where, um, you know, God says, Jack, you've done an amazing job of bridging all these cultures. And uh, uh, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to give you uh, the knowledge of knowing what your last day will be on this planet. So plan accordingly. Uh, what would you be eating, drinking, and listening to as you float off with a glass of wine in your hand? Ah, uh, um Maybe maybe a glass of 20, 20 35 Per Salvadou. 
<laughs> okay, fair enough. God uh, has that power. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to give me a few more years on this planet. And then, um, I don't know, uh, I think um, that, you know, the, 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 the eat, I think it would have to be uh, a very strange but delicious dish uh, from Gascony called uh, Demoiselle, which is mm-hmm. when you're really broke, you, you go to the butcher and uh, you, you get the duck carcasses that have been re- retrieved from, from um, uh, all the foie gras. Right. It's, it's the sort of leftovers. And uh, you chop them in quarters and you basically pan fry them and put salt and pepper on top. And it's just incredible because there's bits of foie gras still left in it. And there's all this, you know, beautiful wow. duck flesh. And you can just sort of peel it off with your fingers. Mm-hmm. It's delicious. Okay. And then... I think music-wise, I need something. Um, I thought of yeah. There's there's a very funny tune uh, by uh, called "Thus Spoke Zarathustra," um, and it's not the classic the one. It's it's a sort of uh, modernized version by this guy called Eumir Deodato. Um, you know, it's that it's that tune that goes dum dum da dum. Um, so, but oh, it's, t- okay. it's done to like a, a funk beat and you probably, have you ever seen the movie, um, uh, being there? Yes. Yeah. So it's Peter the opening, Sellers, yes. yeah, Peter yeah. Sellers. So it's the opening yeah. scene when he, you know, he's been in, inside that house all his life and he, he gets released into the wild and he suddenly finds himself, I think, is it somewhere in New York, but it's, and he's like, realizes that he's been living in this really black neighborhood and there he is in, in, right. You know, wearing a suit and he's got a wet, you know, briefcase. He's yeah, never that's seen such a great well. scene. Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, so okay. that tune's playing in the background. And I, that always struck me as a brilliant piece All of music. Right. Well, that's cool. Well, hey, um, how do people find you? Give us your Instagram shout out, your uh, your website, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. So I think uh, thekeepwines.com and uh, Instagram, I think, is thekeepwines.com as well. Um, and yeah, you can. Well, hey. you can Thank you so much. I, I'm going to tell everybody this is your uh, this is your mission. Go find Keep Wines. They're in the coolest spots in uh, I know in New York City and all around the country. I was just in on the West Coast as well. So uh, take a take a gander, pick whatever, grab whatever bottle they have available. You're going to be very very happy. Uh, Jack, thanks for being on DOTJ podcast. I totally appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, people, uh, just uh, don't forget to go on the website, drinkingonthejob.com. Click episodes and look at the past episodes. There's some cool stuff there. And uh, I will speak to you soon. Take care, Jack. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar.